All right, let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll get into Galatians 2. Father, in Jesus' name we come to you. Thank you for your word, Lord, and pray that we do, uh, it, do it great honor tonight. And Lord, we pray right now that our hearts would be made ready for your word. So Lord, we, um, we follow your son, we love your son, we thank you for your son. And Lord, we uh, thank you for the stories that have affected our lives uh, based on your faithfulness, Lord. So God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of your word in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, all right, so our second week in Galatians, we did Galatians chapter one last week, and that was Paul establishing his own credibility as an apostle of Jesus Christ. As you guys know, he was not one of the original 12 apostles, and so as he shows up on the scene, with the authority of an apostle, he gets oftentimes questioned about that authority. And so he spends chapter one defending that authority, um, mentioning his Damascus Road experience, the fact that uh, his former conduct in Judaism, that he used to be a great persecutor of the church, and then he, in one afternoon it all turned around for him and he became uh, the great, I would say the greatest apostle uh, that we've ever seen of the church. Uh, another point of his credibility is that he was taught by Christ himself. He talks about going three years into Arabia, and um, there he said he learned the gospel through revelation. Uh, God revealed this truth to him, so it didn't come from any man, and he establishes his credibility. This chapter, he's going to switch from giving his own credibility as an apostle to now giving credibility to this gospel. So a little bit of background on why he's got to give credibility to this gospel is because as kind of the theme of Galatians is that you saw on the screens, it's freedom. And freedom from what? It's freedom from that Old Testament law, from all the laws that they had to follow. They've been set free. So, <clears throat> so as you guys have often heard and often said, Jesus died for you. What Paul is really getting at is he also lived for you because perfection and righteousness is the requirement to get to heaven. How you guys doing with that? You need help, right? You need Jesus, okay? So perfection and righteousness is how you get to heaven. Well, Jesus lived that perfect life in righteousness, and now he's going to give the credit for that perfect righteousness to the believer through faith. So he takes your sin, experiences the punishment for your sin on the cross, and then imputes to you his righteousness. So that you're found to be faithful to God's command to be perfect and holy. It's going to be Christ's perfection and Christ's holiness that God will see on your account. Isn't that a relief? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> for some of you more than others. So, So Paul is going to now establish the credibility of this law-free gospel. Now imagine how the Jews would feel about this. They've been trained since Moses. So from Moses and all of those generations leading up to Paul's generation, including Paul himself, who says, I was a rabbi of rabbis, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, trained in the law, pharisaical. It was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he said. He was adamant about following that law, and now he's saying you don't have to. And there's, it's not even that you don't have to. It's that if you follow it for the purpose of being found right with God, you're actually committing, uh, it, it's actually a, a false gospel we call Judaism, which is saying we still need to follow these Jewish principles, these Jewish laws to have righteousness. So Paul is speaking against Judaizers. Now, you're going to see Paul get pretty fired up. You saw him fired up last week. He says, even if an angel from heaven gives you a gospel different from the gospel I'm giving you, tell him he's anathema. And you're going to see Paul get fired up about the purity of this gospel here. And as you follow along, keep in mind that Paul's main point is you are saved by grace through faith alone. It's not of works. Okay, that's his main point. You can't go back to a works-based righteousness. It's a false gospel. Even if an angel from heaven says otherwise, you're to tell him he's accursed, okay? He's protecting the fact that Jesus did all that work. 
And we're not to act like, act like he didn't do all that work, like we have something to do. Okay? He did it all. So when the apostles asked Jesus, what's the works that we're to do? He says, the work for you to do is believe. Okay? Just believe on the one that God has sent. So in chapter 2, we read this. After Paul talks about last chapter, starting in verse 18, he says, three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. After those three years in Arabia, he goes to Jerusalem to see Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. And then he also saw James, the Lord's brother. And then he went to Syria and Cilicia. And he said, my reputation with them was that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. So he's now a preacher of the faith that he once tried to destroy. And that's his, his reputation. So in chapter 2, he continues that timeline. And then he says, then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. So now 14 years after that three-year experience in Arabia, he's now been preaching this law-free gospel for 14 years. Now after 14 years of preaching the law-free gospel, of telling Gentiles that they don't have to be circumcised, that's the main contention, they don't have to be circumcised, he now goes to see Peter, who he's going to call one of the pillars of the church. So he's going to go to Jerusalem, very Jewish Jerusalem, to go see very Jewish Peter, who is the apostle sent to the Jews. And he's going to say, here's the gospel that I've been preaching. And he's going to look for Peter's approval of that and the Jerusalem church's approval of what he's been teaching. Okay? So he brings with him Barnabas and Titus. Now Barnabas is a Jew and Titus is a Gentile. So first of all, the Old Testament says that every matter is established on the testimony of two or more witnesses. So now he's got his two witnesses of the gospel that he's been preaching, right? Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas is a Jew, Titus is a Gentile. So now what you're going to see in this chapter is Paul trying to say that God is the God of both Jew and Gentile. And so he brings his two witnesses, Barnabas the Jew and Titus the Gentile. And he's going to say how they both have received the Holy Spirit. So God is not just dealing with the Jew. Here's a Gentile who received the Holy Spirit. So if you look at the book of Acts, you see something very fascinating that happened that's very relevant to this chapter. In Acts chapter 8, you see an Ethiopian eunuch get saved. This Ethiopian eunuch is from Africa. He's Gentile, and he gets saved in on a carriage ride going, he just went to Jerusalem to worship, now he's coming back from Jerusalem, back to Ethiopia, and God sends the apostle Philip to him. Philip hears him reading the book of Isaiah, explains to him Jesus through the Old Testament. He, God provides a body of water, he baptizes the eunuch in that water, and you have this Gentile convert who just got saved in Acts chapter 8. He's from Ethiopia, that would make him a son of Ham. Noah's son, Ham. He's a Hamite. Then in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 9, is when Paul gets saved on the road to Damascus. Paul is Jewish. That makes him a Shemite. He's from Noah's son, Shem. So you have, these, you have this Gentile from, from, the, from Ham's line. The eunuch gets saved. Then you get a Jew from Shem's line gets saved in Acts chapter 9, who's Paul. Then in Acts chapter 10, the very next chapter, we have Cornelius who's a Roman centurion, gets saved. He's a Japhethite. He's from Noah's son, Japheth. So now you have Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and you get somebody saved from each of those lines, Acts 8, 9, and 10, right in a row. Okay, right in a row. We're seeing that the gospel's for everybody, correct? It doesn't matter if you're from, from Ham, from Shem, or from Japheth. One of you's from one of those guys, by the way. All of us are either a Hamite, a Shemite, or a Japhethite. So it's showing that the gospel's for everybody. Paul understands that because he was right in the middle of that. He was the Shemite that got saved in those three chapters, correct? So now he brings Barnabas and Titus with him. Verse 2 now. He says that I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So he says, I went up to Jerusalem and I'm preaching the gospel that I'm giving to the Gentiles. I'm preaching that to, he says, um, 
um, preaching it privately to those who were of reputation. We're going to see that that's Peter and James he'll name as those apostles of reputation. James being the Lord's brother. And of course you have Peter. He says, so I'm going to tell them about my last 14 years of preaching the gospel. I'm not requiring circumcision. I'm not doing that. It's a law-free gospel. And he says, I'm doing it so that I'm lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. In other words, I'm open for them to, to say what they have to say. Now you're going to see Paul's very fervent that he has the true gospel. He's teaching the true, accurate gospel. But he also knows church order. He knows to go to those in authority and say, here's what I'm doing. Now, what should happen if God's revealing something to somebody and then they check with the church to see if they're running in vain or not, as Paul says, what should happen as an outcome there? Well, if, he's truly been re- if that's truly been revealed by God and the church is truly submitting to God, you're going to see harmony there, aren't you? Okay, you're going to see agreement there. God is not a God of disorder, right? He's a God of order, okay? So when somebody comes and says, this is what God wants me to do and the church is submitting to God, they, there should be agreement there. If there's disagreement there, then one of them's wrong because God is not going to cause that confusion, correct? Okay. Now, verse 3 says, Yet not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek, so there's Titus being a Gentile, not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus. Liberty there is a word for freedom. He says we have this freedom in Christ Jesus uh, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So now here's what happens. Spies were sent in to observe Paul and this Gentile that he has with him, Titus, to see if he's going to require Titus to be circumcised or not. And Paul is saying that the purity of the gospel is at stake in this moment. This was a huge moment in the church's history. Huge moment in the church's history. Because the purity of the gospel, this law-free gospel, they're trying to say, Titus isn't circumcised, therefore it's an illegitimate gospel. And Paul's trying to say that's no longer a requirement of this gospel. Now, he says, I like here when he says, we did not yield submission even for an hour. We never, we never um, flustered on this. We never hesitated on this. We never gave way, he said, even for an hour. And I think Paul would say, not even for a minute did we take this gospel that was revealed to us, by, revealed to Paul by Jesus Christ, and even compromise for an hour on it. Okay, so we were very, very strong about it. They sent spies in to see what we were going to do with Titus, this Gentile. And as um, I'm preaching this law-free gospel, and are, are we sticking to it? In other words, is the gospel that's coming from our lips also the gospel that's coming from our lives? Because if the gospel that comes from your lips isn't the gospel that's coming from your life, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Okay? And we're going to talk about that more in a few minutes. Now, I remember um, several years ago in one of my classes, a student brought to me a video that was bothering them because it was a 20-something-year-old girl, atheist girl, who was saying that Christians are hypocrites. And she was, she was going through the book of Leviticus where it says, you know, like, don't eat shellfish. And then she would show a video of somebody with a cross in a seafood restaurant eating shellfish. And then she would say, she would read the verse from Leviticus about don't wear a shirt that's uh, cotton, don't blend cotton and other materials together. And then she would say, look how many Christians wear cotton polyester blends type of thing. She was doing all the things that God required only of Israel, only in the Old Testament, and applying it to all people of all time everywhere, out of context, completely. Okay? But the people watching their, her video, do they know that? 
No, they don't know that, okay? So she's, it's like the spies that were sent in on Paul. They're trying to manipulate the truth and misrepresent the gospel. So Paul is trying to guard this true gospel. Verse 6. But, those, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. So here's what he's saying about Peter and James, the pillars of the church. He calls them here um, those who seem to be something. And he says, but what they were to me makes no difference to me because God shows no favoritism to man. Now, here's what Paul's doing, and it's so important today. It's always important, but think about this for a minute. He's saying, I'm not starstruck by Peter and James. I know Peter was like in the inner, inner circle of Jesus Christ for three years. I understand that. I understand that James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ and the leader of the Jerusalem church. I understand that. He's saying, but I'm talking about the gospel of, not James, not the gospel of Peter. I'm talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's my authority. There's where my knee bows. There's where my allegiance goes. Not to any man. My allegiance is going to Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I'm not starstruck by these guys. He says, those that seem to be something... He says, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. God shows no personal favoritism to any man. So Paul's saying, why should I? Why should I be worried about them when I'm here to say what I'm preaching about Jesus? If I was preaching about Peter, then I need to be concerned what Peter thinks, right? But I'm not preaching about Peter. I'm preaching about Jesus. I need to be concerned what Jesus thinks. Because what you're going to see shortly is a confrontation between Peter and Paul. Now, if Paul was starstruck by Peter, he would not be able to confront him. But if he's serving Christ and he sees Peter in error about Christ, then he's going to have the boldness to properly address it, properly address it, okay? Notice how he didn't go on social media and address it, okay? Now, But on the contrary, verse 7, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, that's his, what he's calling Gentiles now, he says, on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, that's like saying the gospel for the Gentiles was to me, the gospel for the Jew was to Peter. And then in verse 8, this is important to understand, he says, for he, capital H, God the Father, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Now, Paul is trying to, remember, Paul didn't put chapters and verses in here. This is just the beginning of his letter. So he's already established the credi his own credibility as an apostle. Here's all the reasons why you should accept me as an apostle. And they can't be refuted because they're straight from Jesus Christ. So it's not a matter of your opinion. Jesus called me. Jesus taught me. Jesus sent me. So I'm doing what Jesus told me to do. Now he's saying this gospel might be surprising to you Jews because it's not like the Old Testament. Okay, Jesus did all the Old Testament for us. And now we're free from that as long as we're in faith. Now... Keep in mind, what Paul is about to bring up in this chapter is, does this mean that since Jesus did everything for you, you're free to act however you want to? And he's going to say, he's, in chapter 5, he's going to talk about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit, right? He's going to say, if you actually have been saved by Christ, there is a fruit that will come from that, right? Your desires will actually be towards godly living. You, you have lots of choices between a work of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, and you'll actually desire to work in the fruit of the spirit, not the works of the flesh. Your desires change, don't they? Now, so he says, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Now, Paul could stand up to these pillars of the church because he regarded Jesus more than he regarded people. Look what he says in chapter 1, verse 10. He says, for now do I persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? 
For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Right? So he's saying, I'm saying what I'm saying because this is what I say in service to Christ. Now think about how difficult that can be today. To say what you're supposed to say, to say the things that are faithful to Christ, in my lifetime, this is the hardest time. In my 55 years, this is the hardest time to do it. Okay? This is the most persecuted I've seen the Christian church in my 55 years in the United States of America founded upon religious freedom. Okay? So here we are. And I want you to see how Paul handles this. First of all, he didn't say, I don't care what Peter and James think. He says, no, I wanted to see what they say so I don't run my race in vain. He's showing them their due honor, their due respect. Okay? Their due honor, due respect. Because what does Paul know? If they're following Christ and I'm following Christ, then this is going to be easy. And if it's not easy, then I got to check to make sure I'm being faithful. They got to check to see if they're being faithful. The only time that'll be a problem is somebody's more determined to please men rather than God. Okay? Now, when we talk about Christians should never be starstruck, if you have the notes, you see, I said we daily, we should never be starstruck because we daily serve the greatest rock star. And then I gave you two verses. Romans 9.33 says Jesus is the rock and Revelation 22 says he's a bright morning star. So there's your rock star. Okay, this side gets it. This side, I don't know what's wrong with you. You guys ask them later after the study. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> okay. Over non-negotiable matters of God, there will always be harmony to, towards those who say they got a they they um, you know they got a word from Christ they understand something from scripture and what the church says okay and the church needs to be always bowing their knee to scripture to Christ to be in harmony with those that are out in the congregation that are having their personal relationship with Christ and hearing from Christ right there should be harmony in all of that okay it's only when man rises up above submission to Christ that there'll be disharmony in any of that, and it could be on either side. All right. How did this turn out? So, verse 9, he says, and when James, oh, here's what I want to say about verse 8, though. For he who worked effectively in Peter and for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. So no matter what our station is in ministry, our capacity for bearing fruit in that ministry and our credibility in being in that ministry comes only from God. It says God worked effectively in Peter towards the Jews is the same God that worked effectively in me in ministry towards the Gentiles. Okay? So God becomes their capacity for effectiveness and God becomes their credibility in ministry. Their capacity and their credibility all come from God. That's why there's going to be harmony. Even though Peter and Paul are going to hit a hard spot here, it ends up in harmony. Okay? Verse 9, And when James, Cephas, which is Peter, and John, who seem to be pillars, now those are Jesus' inside group, right? That's his small group of three, Peter, John, and James. So he says, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seem to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Okay, so in this first journey of Paul going to the pillars of the church, here he names the same three that were in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. The same three that are on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. This is the three inner, of the inner group. Paul presents himself to them. Had to be an amazing day. It really did. To think Paul is going to meet these three pillars now. And as Paul has been 14 years out there in the Gentile world, they've got to be wondering, how are the Gentiles receiving this, right? And they're receiving it in amazing ways. Now...
They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. What did Jesus say about the poor? He said, you're going to always have them with you. You're going to always have them with you, right? The poor kind of serve us as the test of your heart. In fact, when you talk about tithes, alms, and offerings, right? Tithe, you know what that is, right? That's for the church to be the church. Offering is when some special occasion has come up, like backpacks that we've been doing. You can have an offering of items for a backpack or, you know, whenever something special comes up, you can have an offering for it. It could be for the church to expand itself. It could be for anything. But alms are only for the poor. That's it. If you write a check to the church, remember those things? And you write in the little line what the check is for, and you write the word alms there, the church can do nothing with that check except for feed the poor, give it to the poor. Okay? God has set a certain offering of our, of, uh, of our own personal wealth for the poor. Okay? For the poor. Okay? One of the most heartbreaking things I ever did was, um, gosh, 21 years ago, something like that, Diane and I were in Italy. We were visiting the Vatican. And to get to that palace of gold with the millions of dollars of artwork in it, we had to walk through scores of hungry, poor people, homeless on the streets. Had to weave in and out of them to get to this palace of gold. Very disheartening. Um, sell a few paintings for them. Do something. Verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Now when Peter writes First Peter, he's going to talk about Paul's letters and that they're actually scripture. They're at the level of scripture, holy and inspired. I wonder if he read that verse. <laughs> he goes, that was wholly inspired when he stood me to my face because I was to be blamed, right? For before certain men came from James, so James is the head of the Jerusalem church, so they're coming from Jerusalem. These are Jews. That's Paul, Paul's way of pointing out these are Jewish men. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So, Peter, when there would be a meeting of Jews and Gentiles, Peter would, before the Jews got there, those sent from James, before the Jews got there, Peter would sit there and eat with the Gentiles. Now remember, Peter's the one on the roof when the sheet of animals, of unclean animals, comes down, and he hears God's voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, not me, Lord. Nothing unclean has ever come into my mouth. He's totally kosher. He's been kosher for life. And he's like, now you're showing me unclean animals and you want me to eat. No way, Lord. I'm not going to do that. That's disobedient. Imagine the Lord telling you to do something. You say, no, that would be disobedient. Okay? <laughs> so the Lord said, don't call anything unclean that I have deemed clean. And then guess what happens in the next chapter? Cornelius gets saved by Peter's visit. And Peter walks right into that Gentile house and says, you may be wondering why me, a Jew, just walked right across your threshold into a Gentile house. It's because God told me not to call anything unclean that he is called clean. So there he's, he's saying that that whole sheet vision was more about people than about animals. Okay? So now, um, now what is Peter doing? Now Peter goes and he eats with these Gentiles, but when the Jews come, he leaves them and only eats with the Jews. Now, what message is he sending the Gentiles? You're second class, right? First class has gotten here. You're second class citizens. Um, he's probably wondering what the Jews are going to think. Hey, they're not kosher. They're, they don't have the dietary restrictions we have. What are you doing eating with them? So Peter leaves them, eats with the Jews. So Peter is acting as a hypocrite. There's one gospel out of his mouth. There's another gospel by his life. So Paul says, I confronted him to his face. 
And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Sin is contagious, isn't it? Sin is catchy. Okay? And now keep this in mind. Now when we sin, sin is contagious. We lead other people into sin. And these words always ring very strong in my heart. I hope they do in yours too. Jesus said, sin is inevitable, but woe to the one through whom the sin came. Okay? It's one thing to sin. It's a whole nother to lead other people into sin. Okay? So hypocrisy is the problem here. Okay, Peter is the hypocrite here. Now, what did Paul say in Galatians 1.8? Listen, even if an angel from heaven gives you a different gospel, tell him he's accursed. So now it's not an angel from heaven. It's Peter. And it's not Peter's words that are so offensive to the gospel. It's Peter's life that's become offensive to the gospel. If your lips and your life don't match, you're a hypocrite, correct? That's what's happening here. Now, <clears throat> hypocrisy may just seem like, eh, so-and-so is a hypocrite. You know, we deal with it, whatever. Let's see what Jesus says about it. Matthew 23. Just, just listen to this. Matthew 23, Jesus says to this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. These are the religious leaders that teach at synagogue every Saturday. Can you imagine that? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you? He says, you are full of hypocrisy. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you? Hypocrites. Hypocrisy is serious sin. Okay, the life that comes, the, the gospel that comes out of your lips needs to be the gospel that comes out of your life. Because what are people watching more? Your life. They're watching your life. And if God's not making a difference in your life, then you're giving a false gospel. God's not making a difference in your life, you're, you're having a false gospel. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to have times e easy times. Wait till we get to verse 20 of this chapter. It doesn't mean you're going to have easy times. It means how you deal with hard times is different than how the world deals with hard times. Okay? You always have hope. Always. You have not had a moment in the faith where you were without hope. Okay? Sometimes God's will is hard. Sometimes God's will is painful. Sometimes, listen to this one, you ready? Sometimes God's will is not your will. Okay? But you've never been without hope. There's a certain blessing to every believer's heart that you should not turn away, which is simply this. You always have hope because God's will will be done in your life. God's will will be done in your life. Okay? Doesn't mean you'll live through tomorrow. Doesn't mean that. It means God's will will be done in your life, though. Okay? All right, verse 14. Well, let me say one more thing about hypocrisy. The gospel removes hypocrisy from our souls because it takes away all of our accomplishments as a means of being justified, okay? So we have nothing to brag about. So what are you going to be hypocritical about? You got nothing to brag about to begin with. The only thing you have to brag about is your Lord, the only thing you have to boast about is your Lord. Verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, notice this, he's eating with Gentiles, then he leaves them to eat with the Jews, and he's dragged other people along with him, including Barnabas. Now he says, that's not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. The gospel says something better than that. 
The gospel says there's an equality between Jew and Gentile, that we are all clean in Christ. But Peter's behavior is sending a different message. And other people are now leaving the Gentiles and making them feel like second-class citizens. So he says, he says that was about the truth of the gospel. If all people are equal in Christ and we don't treat all people equally, then we're not being true to the gospel. If we show any favoritism for any reasons, we're not being true to the gospel. God shows no favoritism, we just read. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So he's saying to Peter, if you're a Jew and yet you're eating with these Gentiles when the Gentiles are around, then, now here's what most scholars think is happening. They think what's happening is that Peter is also trying to get some of them circumcised. He's saying, so why are you trying to live in the manner of, he says, why are you compelling Gentiles to live as Jews? Why are you compelling them to do that? Now, there's no detail about what Peter's doing, but that's a suggestion because circumcision is Paul's big issue here. So he says in 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So by not eating with the Gentiles, Peter was implying their uncleanness, which their faith had erased that uncleanness. Once they came to faith, that uncleanness was gone. He was suggesting that their uncircumcision and their lack of being kosher made them what he called, or Paul called, Gentile sinners. See, Peter was giving them the law, not the gospel. Peter was giving them Moses, not Christ. When we preach law and duty, we're preaching Moses. When we preach faith and freedom, we're preaching Christ. Now, what does freedom mean? What does freedom mean? Freedom does not mean your ability to do what you want. Freedom means your ability to do what you ought. There's a lot of things we ought to be doing, correct? And most people don't feel the freedom to do the things that they ought to be doing. They're in bondage to something like laziness because they don't want to do the things they're supposed to be doing, gluttony because they don't want to eat like they're supposed to be eating. Um, There could be a lot of things you're in bondage to. Freedom is knowing what you're supposed to do and having it within yourself to do it. That's true freedom, okay? Um, People that say, I'll smoke what I want, drink what I want, go where I want because I'm free are living a lie. They're living a lie, okay? In fact, a lot of those behaviors will become addictive for them. And there's nothing that's a bigger sign of bondage than addiction. Literally, you can't do what you want. You have to do what you don't want when you're addicted. So you're in total bondage there. Freedom is being able to do what you're, you ought to do. And when you do what you ought to do, you're being who you were made to be. You were made to be somebody. You were created to be somebody. You were created to be somebody who honors and glorifies the Lord, who your life serves as a testimony to the reality of the Lord, that your sins are forgiven, And that's who you're created to be, to love and to glorify God all the days of your life. Anything that keeps you from that is bondage. The truly free person will constantly love and glorify the Lord. That's the the mark of true freedom. Okay, decisions otherwise are a sign of bondage. So that's why you'll hear Paul argue that in a moment. He says, uh, back to 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? 
We who are Jews by nature, not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. Okay, so he's going to unpack that a little in the next verse. Let me read that one, verse 18. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So as a Jew, Paul's saying, listen, I was a Jew and I was all about the law. But then when I came to Christ, I, I destroyed the law in my life. And now if I'm building the law back into my life, I'm going to become a sinner. Because the law was not there to tell me how to be righteous. The law was there to tell me that I can't be righteous. The law was there for me to go, oh, that's how to be holy and perfect as the Lord. Let me live according to the law. But then you find you keep violating the law. Paul said, I didn't even know that I was a coveter until I read the law. And it said, do not covet. Then I realized that that law killed me. And he's not exaggerating. He's saying that law about coveting killed me because the wages of sin is death. And here I was walking around coveting, not knowing it was a sin, but not knowing that just that sin would kill me. That will be my eternal death. Then the, I read the law. And the law didn't help me not to covet. It helped me to know that I need a savior from my coveting. I need somebody who lived a life totally covet-free that can impute that righteousness to me. That's my only escape from coveting. It's my only escape from coveting is to take the righteousness of Christ who never coveted a thing in his life. And he did that for me and is going to impute that righteousness to me. Christ not only died for you, Christ also lived for you. Lived the life that we can't live so that we can have the righteousness that we can't earn. So he says in 17, but if we, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, that's the law, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Now, Martin Luther said this about this passage of all this works of the law, works of the law, works of the law. I just realized my watch stopped at 7.30. It's not still 7.30, is it? What time is it? You can leave if you want, Scott. 7.45? Okay. All right. Okay. Now, Martin Luther, this whole idea of, of works righteousness and being saved by faith says this. He says, Martin Luther said, because he was a monk, and he said, if ever a man could be saved by monkery, that man was I. Determined in discipline and in penance, in self-torture, that's how he used to deal with his sin, by torturing himself, physically whipping himself, and self-denial. Climbing the scale of sancta, the holy stairs that they would climb on hands and knees to try to punish themselves for their own sin. He says, I was climbing the scale of Sancta when I heard God say in my heart, the righteous man shall live by faith. Okay. So while a monk trying to perform the law, trying to punish himself for his sin, Martin Luther was said to roll around in the snow, just trying to feel clean from his sin. He would whip himself to try to punish his flesh. He would go multiple times a day to confession and confess the same sin over and over and over again. He would confess to the priest all the time, I have sinned. What is your sin? Uh, I was commanded by the Lord, the mightiest and the weightiest command of the entire law, to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I haven't. And he'd go back hours later and, and confess the same sin. In the last few hours, I haven't loved him with all my heart. And he would go back and he finally got kicked out of confession. Can you imagine that? Stop coming here with that, okay? But he understood the weight of the law. He understood the weight of the law. 
And because he understood the weight of the law, can you imagine the freedom he felt when Romans 1.17 was given in his heart, climbing those, those holy stairs? He says, the righteous man will live by faith. He says, Paul says in, in 1.16, the verse before that, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's what Martin Luther realized. It's not the righteousness of Martin Luther that I'm supposed to be after. So I don't need to keep whipping myself and punishing myself and suffering like I've been suffering because that was trying to work the righteousness of Martin Luther in me. He says, but then I understood the gospel. It's the righteousness of God that's worked in me. By God, from God, through God. And the righteous man, the one that's actually going to heaven, will live by, and there's no law after that sentence. He'll live by faith. Because when you live by faith, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. So the righteous man will live by his faith. And because of that, Paul now says, in verse 20, after saying, through the law, he died to the law that he might live to God. And Paul then says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. And if you don't believe that, look at who he was before the Damascus Road. That guy's dead. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Listen, these are the best descriptions of the Christian life. Okay? The life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, search a quote out of atheism, Buddhism, Islam, anywhere you want and find something with an offer like that that's backed with the credibility of eyewitness testimony to a resurrected Christ. In other words, if there's anything that's too good to be true, it's literally our life story, that we've been saved by grace through a risen Christ. You know, being a teacher of teenagers for so many years, I get asked all the time, do I, ever, do I ever doubt it? Do I ever doubt this stuff? And I think I can honestly say this. If I didn't read this every day, I think I might. Do you understand the importance of reading this every day? I have become convinced that the day that you don't get around to reading it, you weren't who you were supposed to be that day. You didn't speak how you were supposed to speak. You didn't respond as you were supposed to respond. I'm convinced of that. You might not be, and I might not be convincing you now, but I want to represent myself as somebody who's absolutely convinced of that. Because I can't do it anymore. I can't not read this anymore. I don't want to know who I am apart from this. Okay? It's be, why? Because I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and it's not just his words that tell me that. He gave himself for me. And you know what? It takes too much of a stretch of my imagination to not believe he rose from the dead. It's way too much of a stretch. It is not possible that he didn't rise from the dead. In fact, I was just watching a video of William Lane Craig, who I love, saying the Achilles heel of Islam is that in their Quran it says that it wasn't Christ that was crucified. He was never crucified. When even atheist scholars are all in agreement that Jesus Christ was on that cross and died that Friday evening. That's not a matter of debate among any in scholarship. And so for the, for the Muslims to deny that, they lose their credibility. It's just too established of an historical fact that Christ died on that cross. Now, they're going to say we're fooled, but all of scholarship, whether it's Christian or not, agrees that Jesus Christ died on that cross, and they all agree that the tomb was empty, that his body's not in that tomb. 
Now it just comes to explaining what happened to that body. And we're the only one with eyewitness testimony that says what happens to that body, and that's that it became alive again. So when I learned how to meditate on Scripture, Galatians 2.20 was the first verse I ever picked, and I'm so glad I did. This verse is so sunk down into my heart. You should really meditate on Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I don't want to know who I'd be without him. I don't want to know him. I want that guy dead. It's no longer I who live, thank God. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, here's how I live it, by faith in the Son of God. Well, what does that look like? I don't know, because tomorrow's a new day and it'll be totally different from today. But I'm going to live it by faith in him, period. I don't know what it looks like but I know I'm going to trust him. Well, what if this happens or what if that happens? Isn't it good that nothing changes here? If all that can change out there, isn't it good that nothing changes here? This is the rock. I do not set, verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. The very work of Christ on the cross at Calvary is at stake with the purity and truthfulness of the gospel. Okay. If you set aside the grace of God for trying to live in a way that you can earn or merit your own salvation, then you just discredited the cross. You discredited Christ's work on that cross. That's why Paul is so adamant it's not grace plus works. It's grace only. And that grace you receive through your faith in him, lived out daily, staying attached to the word of God. All right? This word abides in us, Jesus said. Abide in my word. Okay? And this is obviously his word. Abide in it. Amen? So, Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, thankful for this word. Lord, thank you for the life that it gives. Lord, the truth, the hope that we walk in every day. Lord, the perseverance it gives us in our trials, the character that's developed through that perseverance. Lord God, we're so grateful for your perfect plan. And Lord, there's so much we don't know, but we do know you. And every morning we start right there. So God, we ask that um, you're pleased with this evening, that you would give us blessing, Lord, not so that we're living easy and comfortable, but so that we're equipped for whatever you call us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.